Please stand. Here, the triune God calling you into his presence to worship him in spirit and truth. Reading from Psalm 97:12, he says to you, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks to the remembrance of his holy name. And so I, in his name, say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be your righteous ones, made so by the grace of your beloved Son. Not for anything in us that we would earn or deserve, but for the abundance of your mercy, you saved us, declared us righteous, and are making us personally holy. May we then, even in this moment, be filled with your spirit and manifesting the fruit thereof, able to express true joy in our great salvation and in you, our great God. Have us be mindful of your holy name, not just now, not just for the next hour or so, but every moment of our lives. For you are holy. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and following, we read, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Continuing uh, preaching through Romans in chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 7, and then we'll be focusing on verse 2. Not just one word, whole verse, verse 2. Hear then God's holy and inspired word. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your abiding word and for the opportunity to have studied it and now for the responsibility to clearly communicate it to your people. Please keep my lips from error and have only your truth to go forth and that with powerful effect as your spirit works on the heart of your people gathered here today. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unlike... Many of you, I did not grow up in a solid Christian home. I grew up in what I would call a vaguely, and vague because it wasn't specified, vaguely cultural Christian home. Uh, We were taught that it was wrong to steal, to use dirty words, and it was right to work hard and tell the truth and things like this. But it was not taught that that was all derived from something like a succinct statement in the Ten Commandments, God's word, uh, given from God to man by his very finger. I was not taught the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy. I was not taught the substitutionary death of the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Suffice it to say, the important things were left out. Uh, Many people in our day were raised with even less than I got. Their parents were not only silent about the Ten Commandments being the source of that cultural morality, Uh, but they didn't even get the teachings about the authority or the absolute rights and wrongs 
uh, they were taught an ambivalence, you know, do what works or do what's nice kind of social ethic. Uh, which is worse, they're both not good. Right? As a Christian pastor, though, I must teach you and each of us Christian parents must uh, teach our children that there is right and wrong. There is a God who established these norms, which are absolute, and there is a God to whom we all must ultimately give an account. Friends, this is not mysterious, right? It's not like there's some special code and we have to know unique handshakes that are only for the initiated special people to gain access to, right? God's word is well known. It is not mysterious. It's not hidden under a rock somewhere. People's people's failure to teach these truths to their children, uh, people's failure to understand them is uh, sometimes, you know, maybe the family doesn't have a Bible in the house, right? Uh, that could be understood. But broader speaking, God's word is very available, readily understood. So people's failure to teach these truths to their children, to bring them to bear in their workplace, the economy, the courts, or the legislature, is not because we just like don't know. Right? I've never heard this before. It's because of unbelief. Uh, the problem of our day is not a lack of good legislation. It's not a lack of economic opportunity. It is a lack of faith. It's a lack of faithful men and women filling faithful churches who raise up a generation of faithful children to embrace God's word in faith. So it is unbelief that is the problem. The solution is faith. Coming to our text today, then, I want us to key in on Paul's confidence, his absolute confidence, that the gospel he was separated to, uh, the gospel he was called to deliver and proclaim, the gospel of Jesus Christ whom he served, is consistent with the faith of the fathers. It's been around since Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, etc. It's around for us. It is not a new story. It's the same story of God's absolute authority, his plan of redemption worked out in history. It is consistent with the scriptures received and stewarded by the faithful of Paul's day up unto our day. So the gospel, friends, is not a change to the way God works with man. The gospel is a consistent and very accessible and available manifestation of how God's people were always to relate to him. Because friends, as I put on your outlines, you can meditate on it later. There is only one gospel, termed here the promised gospel, promised in earlier days, manifested in Paul's day, still every bit as valid and definitive in our in the brief time we have together this morning. Let us walk through uh, the words in our English translation, King James Version that I work from, and at each step I will draw our attention to that key point of continuity. Uh, so maybe I should have titled this the uh, continuous gospel, but I wanted to go with the uh, wording in the text. It's the promised gospel, and what those promises, which of course all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, what those promises highlight is the consistency God's revelation to man, the consistency of his preserved word, which is sufficient for us, sufficient for every generation. So that's why I've highlighted in each section of this outline an aspect of that continuity. So let me read again verse 2. With the end of uh, verse 1 for clarity. The gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the first word of the verse, and kind of the reason why I needed to tag on at the beginning there, the end of verse 1, uh, the first ver- word of verse 2 
is very short. It's one letter, but it's important because it provides that grammatical continuity. I've called it. It links verse 2, which standing by itself, you're like, hey, what are you referring to? It grammatically refers to that which came before. So beginning with verse 2, if we just read which he promised before, we would left wondering what was promised, what was written, what did God convey through his servants? And the answer is the gospel, that gospel which God, Paul uh, just identified for us in verse 1. It is the gospel which Paul goes on to say uh, concerns Jesus, the Son of God. It is this gospel, and no other, there is no second gospel, it is this gospel that Paul labored for. So let us not make any mistakes that there is a break in Paul's flow of thought. It's not that he's talking about Jesus in the gospel in verse 1 and moves on to something else that is the focus of the scriptures later. No, focus of the scriptures, the scriptures that were preserved, as we'll get to in a moment, and uh, spoken through generations past, those scriptures focus on the gospel the same gospel from generations past. So highlighting here with this very little Greek word, one letter, the grammatical continuity linking verse 1 with what follows. Next in the Greek is one big word that translates to three English words. Uh, The ending of the verb is what I want to deal with next. and It's what gives us that personal pronoun he. He, God, is the one who promised the gospel before. Uh, In the previous sermon, uh, back in mid-January, I believe, uh, we saw that God owns the gospel uh, in the sense that he is responsible for it. Uh, He's defined its terms, right? Uh, He's the source of the gospel, and that it came from his mind and his will in eternity past. And crucially, he is the focus. He is uh, the telos, that goal that we're aiming for in the gospels. In all those ways, it is the gospel of God. So the gospel... Uh, The good news of God's redemptive plan isn't profoundly good news if we merely have our guilt taken away or we merely avoid hell, as it were. All those are good results. They're not the ultimate good to which the Bible points. The gospel is precious, eternal good news because in it we are reconciled to God and have a restored relationship with him. So to our text, the ending of this um, multi-letter verb, which is the beginning of verse 2, highlights God. God is the one involved here. A real person, a divine person, God. So there is, as I've labeled it in your outlines, continuity of person. So don't think that the scriptures deal with some other person than who the God, sorry, who the gospel does. They are one in the same. We see continuity of person. Third step, uh, the root, the core of this verb, from which we derive three English words. Uh, The core of the verb means here to commit to something beforehand, uh, long beforehand, right? Hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, A parallel verse, not the exact same uh, Greek word, but you'll see how we tie it together in a moment. That would be Galatians 3.8, reading there. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you, all the nations shall be blessed. So that cross-reference, a different word, that is to say, preaching the gospel beforehand is different than promised before, but it makes the same point. Uh, Galatians 3.8 is helping us understand that God's beforehand promising is here citing a very specific instance, a very specific example in real history. That is, God 
through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, made a promise about the gospel to Abraham. It's the same gospel, same promises. There is that continuity. Note that this promise is not merely a foretelling of facts. That is a false view of what God's foreknowledge and what his sovereignty over uh, revelation and prophetic action does. It is not merely knowing something beforehand. It is also a commitment to action, which is why I worded here, assert to action long before. Merely to know what's going to happen, but to have a purpose in bringing that which he knows is going to happen to pass in real time. The statements in Scripture are purposeful because he, God, is purposeful. He has a goal, and he certainly will accomplish it by the means he has outlined. So for our theme of continuity here, I've labeled that continuity of purpose. God has always had the same purpose, and he is accomplishing it through the revealed word. Well, the fourth point. Uh, the gospel which God promised before through his prophets, he made it known by a means. Right. So how did he work out this plan? He's got a purpose. He's got a way he's going to accomplish that purpose. How? That is the word through here, the means or instrument by which it is effected. So without question, uh, and a person who has a biblical understanding of uh, God's sovereignty, uh, without question, God knew in his own mind and had settled in his own will everything that would ever come to pass. That is a settled fact. Without that established as to what it means uh, for God to be God, we're thinking of a different God. So thankfully we have that settled. God knew in his own mind and had settled in his own will everything that would come to pass. Yet he also made it known to men. And the means of doing that was, we learn here in this verse, through prophets. The prophets were the means for communicating this promise. Let us not skip over the little detail that he did it through something or someone. In theory, he could have done it other ways. He even could have done it directly. There are times that he did speak directly to people. But even our knowledge of him speaking directly to people is because it was recorded in the scriptures, right? So sometimes it's recorded in the scriptures and then told to people later. Sometimes the actual direct verbal revelation is recorded here and told to people later. So the emphasis upon written and told to people in writing later. The fact that he did it through someone should not diminish his sovereignty, as if he's limited by people. Uh, the words he wanted spoken really were spoken. Uh, the words he wanted written really were written. The ideas, message, meaning, concepts, curses, blessings he wanted conveyed were in precision to the very jot and tittle. Familiar with that phrase? It means the smallest markings uh, in the Hebrew text. They were conveyed through his chosen means. That the Lord God can do such a thing does not diminish his sovereignty, again, as if he was limited by human agents. It rather magnifies it. The fact that he could do such a thing and have nothing lost in translation or in transmission or preservation is a glorious testimony to other aspects of his sovereignty. Right? He didn't use people like Paul or Moses as robots, but rather he so worked in their personalities. He is the utterly sovereign creator that he could work through and with them to accomplish his specific purpose. Not diminishing his sovereignty, but rather magnifying it, that God works through means. Truly amazing and very clearly beyond the scope of human effort. Only God can do that. And so uh, we see here, as I've titled it, 
the continuity of God's divine character, and specifically, add this to your outlines, divine sovereignty, right? God's sovereignty is very clearly highlighted in the doctrine of the scriptures, here with emphasis upon the work of the prophets, getting it into Holy Scripture. And then we come to point five. It was his prophets that were the appointed means. So what's the work of a prophet? Uh, Very simply, it is one who speaks forth in order to make it known. Uh, Another way to think of it is that prophets announce the message they have been given. Uh, Think back to that example I just read in uh, Galatians chapter 3, which was quoting the words that the direction that Abraham received. Note that the Lord originally spoke those words directly to Abraham. It was the prophet Moses in compiling what we refer, refer to as the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Moses is the one that wrote them down. Uh, he could well have received some sort of preliminary manuscripts from Abraham and, and uh, Adam and things like that. But it was Moses who was the, the writer prophet who preserved this for us. In other cases, as I mentioned, the Lord gave the words only to the prophet. Uh, so think of Jonah or Isaiah and did not speak to the person or people directly. Paul here is referring to the situations where the prophet functioned in his writing capacity. I want to just clarify, they do go together, right? Prophets speak ultimately, but often they wrote down what they spoke, and that is the form we have it in today. Paul is referring to the situations where prophets function in their writing capacity. And in writing, they spoke forth to later generations, and we are among them. Our parents, our grandfathers were the generations that these prophets spoke to through the written text. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, Lord willing, are the ones that these prophets are speaking to in the Holy Scriptures. So I've labeled this continuity of prophetic authority. Old Testament prophets were authoritative when they spoke directly to the people of their day, and they are authoritative in their writings that we read in our day. No less authoritative. It's not that time has elapsed and it's less authoritative. I would say we could even say more time has elapsed and it makes it more authoritative as we see the glory of God in preserving these scriptures for us. True prophets speak for God and his people of every generation must listen. So again, continuity of prophetic authority. Now to point six. Uh, The next word, in, uh, brings us to how it is that that continuity was maintained. Uh, So God's revelation took a form, right? Uh, Paul here refers to the written form. God's promised gospel came through his prophets in writing. Uh, There were other forms of communication. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, God's communication with Adam was directly verbal. Uh, Other times there were dreams and visions. And I've put in your outlines there a text for you to look up later, Hebrews 1-2, which speaks of in former times and in different manners. Those are the ways that God spoke. And now in our time, he's spoken through his son. So there are a variety of ways in which God uh, manifests his work, communicates to people. Consistent here is that God chose a vehicle, some type of form, to communicate with us, suited to the message according to his divine wisdom, the time, capacity of the audience, the purposes of God. He has chosen different means at different times. But the text speaks specifically of writing. In all of this variety, let us not lose sight of the amazing fact that God, 
has made himself known to us. Right? God is spirit. We can't see him without faith. We need some way that he reveals himself. Some, I'll call it a vessel that he is and his, his revelation is in. Here speaking of the vessel of the written word that his revelation is in. So we need to not lose fact of the amazing fact that he has made himself known to us by various means and in different forms. God is not afar off. He's not deaf to us, and Lord willing, we are not deaf to him. Or maybe better wording, because I'm speaking of the written word, not the verbal word. Let us not be blind to him, right? May he open our spiritual eyes to see and read and understand the words he's given to us. He is not living in the shadows. He has made himself known. His promises are known. His will is known. Directly to the point here of Paul, his gospel is known. So I've turned this uh, continuity of condescension, and I actually struggled with what word uh, worked best there, uh, and ultimately had to settle on this because it is a, a, a sort of theological buzzword for the condescension of God to man. The fact that Though there is a vast difference between the infinite nature of God and the finite nature of man, he has condescended. So think of it, he's come down. Not condescendence like we think in human terms, talking kind of, oh, you small person there. That's not what the condescension of God means in theological language. The fact that he has condescended to make himself known to us, us finite beings can grasp a glimpse of God and to really and truly know him. Not to know him completely, we as finite beings cannot comprehend an infinite God. But what we do know, we truly know, he has condescended to make himself known to us. Praise the Lord. And in the, the seventh point here, God condescended by way of speaking, the prophet spoke, and then writing his holy scriptures. I emphasize here the word holy. Why? Stop to think for a second. Maybe we get in such a habit. Maybe you even got it printed on the front of your Bible in gold letters. I don't, but I think on the title page it does says, Why are these called the Holy Scriptures? Merely because they're old? Uh, because they have lofty language and speak of impressive topics? That's not what makes God's Word holy. Other books will claim that antiquity uh, tend to have convincing style, but we would not esteem them as Holy Scriptures. By way of example, I'm not sure if I've talked with any of you about, but uh, there was a season in which uh, my family and I lived in, out in Utah. I was fairly young in the ministry and felt the Lord's leading to move out there. Our third uh, child was born there, uh, as were the uh, fourth and fifth. Don't lose track. And so we're ministering to the Mormons. And uh, it was quite an interesting situation, if you have ever studied Mormon theology, uh, because they have their books, they have their prophets, and so much of it on the outside especially would look and very consciously aims to mimic uh, true Christianity. And if you ever read their books, which I actually wouldn't recommend because there is a demonic issue there, so only with great care and prayer uh, would I suggest you do so. But it's, it's, it can get funny after a while, to be honest with you, because it's like, okay, Mr. Smith thought that if it's going to be scripture, it's got to sound like the King James. So this book that supposedly came not from uh, translators in 17th century England, but from a totally different source, tries to sound like the King James. And you're like, that verbiage doesn't, that's not what makes scripture, like, that's not what makes it authoritative. So nice try. Um, but 
make the same thing. They come up with a story that would purport to have great authority and similarities with what we read in the true Bible. But that is not what makes the scriptures holy. And uh, adding on to what we already read from the Belgic Confession, if I might indulge you uh, to read a small portion of the Westminster Confession. So it's chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession that deals with Holy Scriptures. And this uh, section 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof. So all of those things are arguments where it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with the word in our hearts. So yes, it's all. Yes, all the parts agree there's no conflict. And yes, it has all these qualities. Even with that, the Westminster Divines, seeing as it's stated in Scripture, it's only by the work of the Spirit that we can understand that these 66 books are from God. The 66 books of the Bible are holy, because they are attested to by the Holy Spirit and are clearly associated with the Holy God. It is only on this basis that they are to be revered as God's. So that's why the writings of Joseph Smith, of the Jehovah's Witnesses, of whatever other cult and attempted pseudo-Christian sect out there, that's why those aren't holy scriptures, because they don't come from God. They're the doctrines of demons. As Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6 speaks There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So it is that common bond of the spirit, different denominations stemming from different parts of Europe, etc. But we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We share these one holy scriptures as it is one God who revealed them, preserved them, authorized them, and has commanded us to obey them. So I worded this. Continuity of indwelling testimony. So as Christians, we are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, and having him bear witness in our hearts, we recognize these writings in our Bibles as holy. We emphasize holy scripture. To the uh, eighth point here. Uh, To wrap up this verse uh, coming as the, the apostle ultimately does to the word graphice, writings. These are not mere scribblings on parchment, but holy writings. In context, this refers to the sacred books of the Old Testament. Let me clarify that. I've been referring to 66. I just specified that explicitly. You'd say, oh, you're adding to scripture. Because at the time of this writing, we didn't have the New Testament. And so, uh, like in the Timothy passage, I uh, read earlier, 2 Timothy 3.16 and following. That's in context, is referring to the uh, Old Testament. But through divine authorization, uh, through the prophets of the New Testament, we add to it the letters and gospels, etc. And so we do have 66 books. The Lord has given us a complete of the world and humanity. Not exhaustive. By complete, I don't mean covering every single nuance of detail, 
as John writes it in his gospel, if we were to tell you all the things that happened with Jesus, the world couldn't contain the books that we would write. So it's not exhaustive in detail, but it is complete. Complete history of the world and humanity. Not a, but complete. Do we want to change microphones? Sorry. Okay. Uh, complete in that it tells us the key things we need to know. Uh, let me read again uh, that quote from 2 Timothy 3. Then I'll back up verse 15 now. So uh, Paul speaking to Timothy. From childhood known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all good works we need to do flow from the Holy Scriptures. Having the Scriptures, reading the Scriptures, understanding the Scriptures, and being wise in the living out of what the Scriptures teach us, we are saved from our sins. We have peace with God and with man. We are complete, not lacking anything. That's incredible. Incredible. I've worded this as uh, continuity of written revelation. So there is revelational continuity. The same scriptures possessed by saints of old have been preserved by us. While Timothy had the blessing of the Old Testament, we have the blessing of the Old and the New, which does not add anything, but rather confirms and explains the Old. So coming to the point of conclusion for you, friends, I want to consider, again, a personal story I shared at the beginning. My bringing sadly lacked a solid foundation. Uh, I was not taught about the ultimate authority of all morality. Uh, ultimately, then, it is a question of authority. What is the authority behind what people assert? If you've got your idea and others have their idea, who says? Who decides? The answer we can firmly commit to, God is the one who says. He has said. He has spoken. He has had it recorded for us. Modern man, well, nothing new under the sun. It's not just moderns. It's people in the past century too. All people want to be their own boss. As sons of the first Adam, we don't naturally want to submit to God's truth claims as spelled out in the Bible. At every point of discussion, such a person is going to disagree with Christian thought and practice. And uh, here, by way of application, with the two arrows at the bottom, I want to give both a warning and a comfort. Uh, mine, by way of warning, from 1 Samuel 15. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So these words were spoken, as likely familiar, by Samuel to Saul. For context, just prior to this, Saul claimed a clear conscience. He literally said, I have obeyed. That was verse 20. And I read a moment ago verse 23. Those were his exact words. No, you did not obey. He maybe did what he thought was right, what his selective memory convinced himself was what he needed to do, but not what God defined right. That is rebellion. That is no small thing. Not merely you know, the pastor's opinion mom and dad's opinion. It is God's opinion. The prophet spoke to him saying, no, you have not obeyed. Your stubbornness, 
to resist doing what God told you is as iniquity and idolatry. Serious words. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Very serious. So both words uh, are a warning. Uh, it causes us to tremble, really, apart from Christ. Uh, a warning of God rejecting him who rejects God's word. It should make us pause and humbly ask the Spirit, Oh God, search my heart. Am I not living in submission to your word? Please show me. And then rather than being self-satisfied and either tricking ourselves or tricking others into believing that we're obeying, rather than that, we need to hear and believe and submit, uh, repenting and growing in greater faith to by his grace, by the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit, have greater uh, continuity of our lives with the mind of Christ as revealed in the scriptures. So friends, uh, don't forget the full scope of this verse before us. I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees. I that the gospel is continuous. It's not a new invention. God beforehand committed to saving a people for himself. He put it into writing, and he surely does what he says he will do. May we be like Abraham, right? Fully convinced that what the Lord promised, he is able to perform. And in believing that, be strengthened in faith, giving. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your very great and precious promises. We cling to them, for in these words of life, we have our only hope. But we cling to them not as some ancient artifact that has value merely because it's old or has been repeated so many times. We cling to these promises because they come from you. They are attested by your eternal will. They were conveyed by your chosen messengers and they were preserved by your kind providence. That we living in these last days through the patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Please give us that hope and boldness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.